Welcome everyone to the Blast From Cast From. Do we like the Blast From Cast From? Blast yes. From Podcast? It's too late to change up now. It's too late now, isn't it? That's We kind of yeah. went down an alley and um, we're stuck there. Uh, it's the new episode of the podcast where it's pronounced Bowie. That's correct, isn't it? There's a few mm. different attempts to pronounce this person's name, but I've heard him say it and it's Bowie. Disagree? I don't know. <laughs> Even though I've just said I heard the man himself pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's dealer's choice. Dealer's choice. I know that. So when Americans are talking about a Bowie knife, they would say Bowie, and I've heard people talk about David Bowie. Uh, they've also had the uh, Bowie, as in what a dog would call him, I guess, um, and all the variations in between. But we know that the man is called David Bowie, a legend in pop music history. Bowie, I thought that Bowie was spelt like the same way we spelt like boy is in the little thing that bobs in the sea. Like B-U-O-Y. Like is that not Bowie? I this, well, I thought it was, I thought it was boy. Has this started? Yes, indeed. Okay. This is uh, on air, live action. Uh, yeah. We are now talking about Bowie. So. We I've were, never heard one person say Bowie. Let's not lie to ourselves. It doesn't matter how it's been pronounced. <laughs> And not not one of you have said that it's pronounced like that. What Bowie? No, no, no. The, the, we're not saying Bowie. We're saying Bowie. Oh, that's da- different as well. David David I Bowie. Bowie. Say David Bowie. Well, you're wrong. I can point to evidence Kay. that would suggest otherwise. So, well done. You're you are correct. I'll tell him his name. You'll mm. tell him. Well, bow wow wow yippee yo yippee yay. Let's move it on. <laughs> Let's move on. So. <laughs> so speaking speaking of your feelings about this towering great legendary artist your experiences of uh, David Bowie what your feelings are your your favorites your not so favorites your what what do you think of this guy well my first cuz i'm so much younger than the rest of the parties on this podcast <laughs> you see so my much first younger. yeah my introduction was the labyrinth so I just saw this Rod Stewart-looking guy um, in this film. No idea who he was. And I would say that it was probably more of a, as I got older, teen years, things like that, started listening to his music a wee bit more, that I Hmm. began to really enjoy. He looks like someone who would be voted off in the very first round of RuPaul's Drag Race. He just looks... Oh, he's keeping it modern. (laughs) Terrible. Um, Just a wig on, on the guy. He's all right looking at that. What was it he said oh, when I was watching on, the film last night? Nice. Fear me, love me, do as I say and I will be your slave. What an awakening. <laughs> oh. Nobody knows what I'm talking about, okay. Well we'll get it's I mean we'll living. get we'll get to Labyrinth at the very end. Um didn't want to talk about Labyrinth at this point. I was just thinking, you know, your your favourite's gonna dominate because he's because he's a musician, you know, and he did, he made music. And what was your favourite so little singy songs that he did throughout his extensive and very long career? Um I would have to say Heroes, but I do like some of the very dark, depressing instrumental stuff on low. Mm, this guy. Why did we and need to station to station. <laughs> My genuine uh, introduction to David Bowie was unfortunately round about this period with Let's Dance. I just he was the 
He was the um, funny teeth. Uh, oh, did he have funny teeth in Let's Dance? Yeah, he had um, interest. So he's got, I mean, natural teeth. I think by today's oh, uh, yeah, terrifying sorry, that's white teeth standards, yeah. uh, not not the best. But but uh, that was my that it, no Ziggy Stardust, spiders from Mars. It was like finding out your dad had some sort of a sexy past or something, because. I saw the Let's Dance guy in a bit of kind of slightly reddish looking hair. He's wearing a suit and a ridiculous kind of MTV. And then retroactively looking back and be like, oh yeah, he dressed up as this weird thing. He pretended he was from some sort of like outer space and like lycra and uh, and writhing and snake like. And um, like I said, it would be like if you kind of came across some sort of under the bed photo manual album uh, of of some sort of sexy and this hasn't actually happened my my father's a fat dumpy man um but you know what i mean if you find some sort of sleek sexy secret past that's how i felt about david bowie it was like what that's better stuff and it's not just this weird sort of shuffling slightly good 80s guy he's had a he's had a wonderful wonderful career that i never knew about so it's the time period for david bowie that we're going to zoom in on is 1982 to 1986. This was uh, late 30s uh, version of David Bowie. Um, the, I don't know, bleach blonde tanned David Bowie. Butter know, hair. Butter, <laughs> butter hair David Bowie. Whatever you want to... How, how, how would you describe this sort of, this period? This was the... the is Declining. It, <laughs> post new wave. Um, it's, it's, it's the pop, like the very... Well, I mean, he was always pop, but this was like really pop. Uh, version this is the yeah. 80s version of the man i mean are we going to talk about because obviously you shared a couple of albums around about the same time as uh, as a film we're going to talk about later i'll not mention it right now for fear it might uh, tangent us off on a talking about it a bit more <laughs> groin um but um <laughs> the the two albums that you did share uh i hadn't actually heard it's the one where there's like a stained glass window or, or at least it's him in the middle Tonight. of blue yeah, yeah and i think am i right in saying because there's a cover on that album Hey, Is that one of his first? You're a fan of jumping yeah. ahead, aren't you? Oh, God, God only knows. Yeah. Sorry, t- t- yeah. pull it back. So, um, let's, let's dance. Let's, <laughs> he didn't read the brief. <laughs> it wasn't a brief. So, I mean... I was aware of the brief. Oh, let me collect myself here. <laughs> try, try and say <laughs> stuff. Myself. stuff. Try and say stuff that won't throw David into... Let's go to the next, the third point that you're going to make. This... So... <laughs> Mr. Bird. (laughs) When people look at David Bowie's career now, they kind of look at the broad, look at in broad strokes the whole sort of uh, oeuvre uh, of his um, entire discography (laughs) and think um, that. You know, he's he's just he's been great. He's had success through the whole time. They don't think about the the ups and downs of uh, that a person's career can take. And before this massively successful '80s period, uh, he was the he was kind of a piano-y man. He was a bit of a hard rock guy in the in the early '70s, and then there was the Ziggy Stardust period. And it was interesting hearing uh, the perspective of my mother um, about the the star man that. Space Oddity was obviously his first big famous song. Um, and then her perception was that he went away for a little bit. And then Starman was like the sequel to uh, Space Oddity, um, even though he was obviously making albums and stuff in between that. But in terms of, you know, out there, top of the pops, uh, chart success, you've got this and then this other little period where he come, kind of comes back and is noticed and is considered a very peculiar fellow. This little period here was quite 
quite good though, wasn't it? The what one are you talking about? The oh, Starman oh, or so it, yeah, late sixties, early seventies. When uh, like late sixties, like until Space Oddity, some good songs on that album. But the uh, the stuff he did before that, have you have you bothered to take a plunge? Oh yeah, I've heard that. I've <laughs> the heard Laughing that, Gnome and yeah, um, yeah, like uh, quite surprising. I mean, there wasn't really a bad period until period we're going to discuss tonight, really. Although there was still some some gold in there, I would say. But um, I'm fight you on this. Oh, oh. Okay, well, I'm 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 prepared. Is there some terrible stuff that you're gonna? Are you saying that it was all great, or there's some terrible stuff in there? Fantastic. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> fantastic. Is this is this the same as sort of? I'm assuming because obviously there'll be different perspectives. Me from a kind of latecomer. Uh, you relative, you and Adam probably relatively quite twenty or early twenties, late teens, discovering maybe a Bowie that kind of thing, and then Kate is obviously young. But like with me. I will defend all of Jackie Chan's films as masterpieces, but to everyone else, they might not be that good. The, the sort of your version of what you like about something makes it better in your eyes. But anyone says a bad thing about who am I, Jackie Chan? Um, I'll take the school, okay? All right, I'll keep that <laughs> aggressively if I have to. When we come to the Jackie Chan podcast, <laughs> you can take the lead on that one. I'm very much looking forward to that. Um. Big success, mid-70s, uh, Aladdin Say, and all that kind of continues. And then there's an sort of uh, unfortunate period in the late 70s where he wasn't doing so well personally, but continued to make kind of critically acclaimed music. Again, that's where he kind of falls off on t- in terms of the, you know, the very top of the stardom. Um, I don't think he uh, was doing too badly in the late 70s. In the mid-70s, he was a, a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Berlin straighted him right out. But yeah. uh, it was the uh, station to station stuff where he was into the Nazi stuff and the cocaine. That was the uh, that was the bad time. So, relatively speaking, he was still somewhat popular. But um, Ashes to Ashes was kind of his. That was the the actual sequel to Space Oddity, and uh, that was a that was a big, huge success. A very catchy song. That's where he starts to enter this period, um, and then. You've got the Under Pressure song not long after that with uh, with Queen. Liking that song? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Vanilla Ice. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so if you're starting in 1982, there's some gold that you can talk about because there's the Under Pressure. There's also the song they did uh, with Giorgio Moroder for Cat People. This is him starting to get this, you know, this cream up for this this kind of pop 80s, he's getting right into the 80s at this point with that Cat People song. And let's not forget The Snowman. The Snowman. Tell me about The Snowman. <laughs> this, is not, this is not part of my research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in 1982, The Snowman, he does that little intro where he walks into the attic. Why he... do I have no memory of this? Do you not remember the David... I should have sent you that. I was watching it just yesterday being like, better do my preparation. Neil will be all over this. Um, it's going to be all over the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like he he, he uh, pretends like he's the like live action little boy from the snowman because he has the scarf and everything. And he's like, oh, this attic holds a lot of memories for me. Oh, hang on, the crevices. Do you, not, do you not remember that? I have no memory of this whatsoever. I just remember some yeah, sort of... Little boy, snowman flies, snowman dance, comes back melty. Sorry, spoiler well, alert. The, the next time you watch the snowman, make sure you watch the David Bowie intro version where he walk because he's got his like let's dance like uh, gold butter hair, 
and he walks up into this loft with this idyllic little winter scene and stuff and he takes the little scarf that the snowman gives the boy in the film because apparently his son loved the book so much which had come out a few years before. So he was like, I'd like, I'd quite like to come along and do a little thing. <laughs> so oh, David Bowie, I will get, get him for a day. I mean, one part of this is trying to trace where he starts this bleach blonde uh, look. Was that the snowman? Or was that... <laughs> <laughs> was that the origin of the bleach blonde could, look? Could have been the snowman. <laughs> was he trying to get his hair to look like the boy from the snowman? That's what changed him as a man. That's what turned this whole thing around. Then maybe that's the wow. source of how he became a, a pop superstar was the intro to the snowman. What what my view of it was is that nobody really knew what was coming and just one day he was gonna turn up to work like I I'm doing this now and everybody had just had to roll with it. Yeah, it yeah. It was He was a bit like that, I think. It was out of nowhere. This so I mean the the groundwork for what this first sort of big the big explosion, the big um announcement of that he's now an 80s pop superstar was Let's Dance which was in 1983 I guess the 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 motivation behind it was that he just he wanted to he wanted to attempt this sort of funky kind of cool stuff that was going on at the time that was a thing it was like it wasn't that he was writing the oh better get into the 80s flow now like I think he was just like well I'm gonna try this out um, and wasn't like a victim of obviously trying to be like try to keep up with a trend rather than i'm just gonna turn up and start doing songs that sound like that now um just because i fancy it well he was always a bit of a trend hopper uh mm. like throughout his career he was kind of trying wanting to try new things i always felt like he didn't he never arrived at what he wanted to to be and this was like uh. the first time like during this period was that he, he kind of he settled into a, a bit of a nook like, I don't think he did it for monetary reasons, though, is what I mean. Like, it didn't do it for, like, I've got to keep hip, got to keep up with the kids. I think it was just, like, a, like my point, kind of just trying to see how how he sounds in that sort of genre. Yeah, I think, I think that there was an element of, like... Because he'd also signed with EMI. That kind of changed in terms of, like, especially commercially and stuff. And I think that there was a certain, like, expectation for him to... Still, even though he was David Bowie, there was still a certain expectation for him to be a certain way. And I think that the whole Nile Rogers thing with the way that he'd done the Diana Ross, uh, a brain freeze here, the, the kick at the World out. Cup, uh, Chet, uh, no, it wasn't chain reaction. What was the one? Are you jumping yeah, ahead of upside down, upside down? Yeah, a couple of years before that, in, in the early 80s, I think. And uh, Diana Ross, uh, Niall Rogers had done this album for Diana Ross, and it basically like changed her career around again from like you know, it like revived her, but there was also a kind of creative, like you know, curiosity as well about working with this like Uber, having gone from like. Berlin art rock, really creatively enriching stuff to, well, now I'm a megastar, I've signed this thing. There was probably a curiosity to work with that kind of thing as well. Like Katie was saying, like, I wonder how I would sound doing that. Because apparently the song Let's Dance was like an acoustic kind of folky sounding song. And it was actually Niall Rogers that made that the song it is. You you mentioned there, this is him signing with... Um... EMI, it was a new deal. He was obviously wanting to be done with uh, RCA. And um, the the last recording he did for uh, RCA, obviously, was that uh, Bal um, EP from the <laughs> BBC yeah. musical. Did you, anyone give that a listen? Or has anyone oh, yeah. seen uh, the, uh, the, the... I've got the, that on uh, 45 as well. Oh, have you? You've got the actual... Um, 
the actual. I was, uh, is that one you spin the, uh, quite a lot? No, <laughs> not really. It was it was one of the ones my dad gave me. Um, a completist. So. <laughs> by the sense yeah, of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I look at it. I take it out of the box and I look at it and I go, hmm. And then it goes back in the box. It's uh, hmm. It'll never go on. <laughs> and in this new deal, he was originally scheduled to collaborate with uh, Tony Visconti, obviously his long-term uh, production partner, and turned coat on him, uh, going with Niall Rogers instead. How, how about that? Supposedly Tony was uh, a wee bit hurt by that. He did that with some of the musicians as well that like played in it, like his, the session musicians that played with him and stuff as well. He's pulling a bit of a Liberace then. A Liberace? How's he doing that? Just oh. Something new. Maybe uh Let's Dance was like his Matt Damon, he was just trying something out. If he was if he was clearing out the house, you know, ending the relationship, could have done it a bit a wee bit better. Um just in the description I read, um, that he called him up and said because he was he Visconti was booked, you know, to be the producer for this and then uh, Bowie contacts him, you know, and says, "Oh, it's you know, a couple of a couple of weeks now it's been that we I've been recording it with a different producer. Sorry, mate. I mean, Visconti by that point, though, was probably used to getting a bit shafted because he was doing the Young American sessions and they'd had the, like, they'd done all the recording and he was like, uh, yeah, uh, New York uh, recording, Tony Visconti. And then he took, Tony Visconti went back to London, took the master tapes and mixed the album down. And then one night, David Bowie was just hanging about with John Lennon and he was like, I just come down to the studio, eh? And this stand-in producer guy just recorded fame and John Lennon was in like doing fame and stuff like that. And apparently David Bowie was like, uh, Tony, got another song to go on the album, recorded it with John Lennon. Apparently he was like, oh, that would have been quite nice to, to produce that one. Yeah, it was, so he's probably used to getting a wee bit, um, a bit of bad news off him. I don't think they didn't they like not work with each other for a while after that. When was the next one? Was it not until like the early two thousands or something? Yeah, it was Heathen in two thousand and two. Was uh, so that was a bit that was Ray Lumbridge um, <laughs> taking the you know, awkward phone call. You know. Like I've been thinking about you, Tony. You remember the old days? If you're Neil, if you're Neil Rogers, though, you're not going to say no when uh, David Bowie's asking uh, do stuff with you. You're you're, you're going to follow suit. He's probably yeah, oblivious to all this. Uh, this. This friendship uh, business. It's bitterness. But yeah, we're we're into it now. Rogers, chic, really funking it up for for David here. Let's dance the big song from the album. You remember the the music video, the very tanned looking situation he's in. And um, weirdly, sorry, just to jump in as well. Like my weird memories of Let's Dance were also was him against a wall, nothing else. It felt like a wall of a diner. <laughs> And him yes. stood leaning against the wall. And that's all I remember from that video. I'm sure other things happened in it. But when I remember Let's Dance, it's almost like a flash of that buttered toast hair in a suit. <laughs> on like some like lino and leaning. It's, and that's it's it. It's a bizarre choice because they, they, for some reason, they went to Sydney to shoot the music video. I don't know whether they were on tour or something. The, obviously, that's the, the big hit. You have a few covers on here, actually. This is where he starts with putting quite a few covers on his albums. Um, Ch- China Girl, which is not well, it's it is a cover. Oh, it's I a cover of an Iggy Iggy pop song, but it's one that he wrote. So obviously, he felt entitled to <laughs> to stick it in there. And, his and I, fe- I also I also feel like I have to mention the fact that this by this point, Iggy, who was a good mate of his, had fallen on hard times 
And because he had a co-writer credit, David Bowie put that song on and released it as a single so that he got the royalties from it because he knew his mate was having a hard time financially. Oh, that's wonderful. I was um, reading up on, like, obviously, like, the the Let's Dance years as well. His most successful commercial time, but you can't just enjoy it or, you know, whatever. Like, he has to throw in a wee insult there and said, oh, this is is like my least creative time of my uh, music career and my Phil Collins years. (laughs) Just throw that in. (laughs) Pure Phil Collins. Side diss to to Phil Collins. Oh, God. (laughs) He gets dissed by, he got dissed by Paul, Paul McCartney as well, Phil Collins. Another couple of throw-up ones. You got Criminal World, which was uh, a cover of a Metro song, uh, and then a retread of Cat People putting out fire again, stuck in this album. So yeah. this was a song that was for. I've never seen the film. I've Who's never seen. seen the film? Own I, up. I have not it's a, seen it's a the remake. Film. It has a certain quality. <clears throat> quality to it. Oh, I wish I hadn't cleared Politics. my throat at that moment. <laughs> cut that out. That's getting <laughs> cut <laughs> out. <laughs> focused on. <laughs> Amplified. And then, so this is a, <clears throat> this is some album, isn't it, really? I mean, it's, this is him, you know, he's he's done laid the groundwork for the, the, the turncoating on Visconti and, you know, the popping up, the intentional popping up. Um, but this has stood the test of time, has it not? Oh, Mo- Modern Love's great. A friend of mine had Modern Love as his wedding song, so... Doesn't necessarily make it good. <laughs> <laughs> what do you not like it, David? I mean, I like the film version of Cat People with a really long intro, but um, um, yeah, I'm just being like, uh, it's not a. I, I don't know what it is about hearing a cover on any album. It, it's honestly, it's like going to a bloody remake. Sometimes I just think, what's the point? The minute I hear a cover, unless like a, like we're saying, if a cover's done and if remolded it, reshaped it into something new. And it becomes its own thing, but when it's just a kind of a version of something, I think that's what Bowie did for a couple of the songs in this—the kind of versions of it. But Which, I, I, I yeah, expect more from the boy. I know what you mean. Like um, Devo's version of uh, Satisfaction is, you know, like amazing because it just changes the the song, the original song completely. And Bowie's a bit like that back in the seventies when he did things like "Let's Spend the Night Together," and it just changed the the whole dynamic of the song and stuff. But when it got to this period and he just did the toned down, bland covers and stuff. This was a massively uh, successful album. This is most successful album. And this, I mean, this is kind of why I wanted to speak about this period because when I was younger, um, this was the David Bowie that was known to me and through, through this period. And uh, like you were saying earlier on, David, the 70s stuff was discovered afterwards. So whenever somebody said, you know, David Bowie, it was, this was what I imagined. It was, you know, the, the, the blonde hair, the, the tan, the, the Let's Dance video, and didn't really uh, at the time think much of that. And it was obviously after the fact that you kind of find out the backlog discography there. Anyone else? Yeah. So we're all relatively similar age groups. Obviously, one is much younger than us. Apparently, was that the same? That that was the initial. Obviously, it sounds like uh, Adam's completest father. Uh, he might have had a bit more <laughs> contact with the, the discography, uh, but yeah, yeah it's uh, just yeah. Was that 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 was that similar? Your first, you know, experience of of, of him was this kind of massively successful period, and this kind of permeated this kind of ripple through in the nineties as well. This was what he was he was kind of known for up until then. Like I said, my introduction was uh, his uh, more commercial, his more commercial stuff. <laughs> I was obviously born in the nineties, and uh, 
He wasn't going about as much then, was he? Yeah, that's the thing. It was he, there was a. I mean, we're not going to cover that period, but again, there was another. It was a dip, and this. He, well, he just said himself, he's calling it his Phil Collins years, and he kind of blames this period of getting stuck in this loop uh, for, you know, him kind of falling off a wee bit. My my sort of knowledge was him, his songs being used more for films in the later, later years, the 90s and obviously early 2000s, and then you actively have to go, unless you hear it on the radio, you have to actively go back and see the progression. That makes sense. Yeah, and he and he put a lot of effort into like his acting career at this point as well. The lull creatively with the albums seemed to happen from the kind of mid eighties all the way through until like two thousand two, I would say. But um, he, he appeared in a lot of strange films as well. During this time, he had the the obviously the early part. There's the Hunger, which um, I have yet to see, and I wasn't going to request that everybody watch this. I would have liked to have because. Um, it looks very interesting, um, but it's a, it's a pay your money situation here. <laughs> Whereas the film mm. that we're going to talk about later, um, it was on the that uh, famous streaming service that seems to everybody has like running water uh, these days. Um, and then Absolute Beginners was round about this period as well. I don't know if anyone's seen that. No. Ages ago, and I only watched the film because I knew he'd done the song for it, but... Um... I can't remember anything about it. I just know that the song's pretty decent. And then the Bal uh, musical, of course, as well on BBC. Um, so yeah, the, he's got he's he's just doing all this stuff. I mean, he'd he'd had acting experience experience before in the seventies uh, as well, limited acting experience. And this is yeah, he's just trying to throw his hand to the ring, become a a big superstar, which he does. Um, the following album, Tonight, uh, in nineteen eighty four. A little less successful, but nonetheless, it was a it was another definite pop music in the similar vein attempt, but not as well received, not quite as commercially successful. And your feelings about this this nineteen eighty four effort from from David Bowie? Yeah, apart from um, blue jeans or blue jeans, blue jeans, blue jeans. Jean. Um, hey, take it easy. Um, I don't. I don't particularly like it. It's because it, I never actually heard. I've heard the the song Blue Jean, but I never actually heard this album. It's so poppy and bit of <laughs> bit of reggae uh, action here. So tonight oh, was God. so actually isn't isn't this album kind of like what your like what your parents who don't really like Bowie? This is the stuff they're gonna like. You know what I mean? Like your parents have thought it was a bit of a weirdo. Like they're probably going to enjoy Blue Jean, aren't they? I don't. I don't even think they would like that album, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, over like, back to the covers thing. Over fifty percent of this album is cover songs. Uh, so I don't know. Not not uh, casting aspersions in terms of um, effort level, but I don't know. What does that speak? What does that say to you? Over more than half of the the album is a, is a cover song. Running out of steam. Well, it's just a. It was contractually just something that he. Oh, he's I mean, he signed with the MI, and he's already. He's already well, fed up. The fact that it's uh, there was obviously some contractual ob- obligation to do a duet with Tina Turner. <laughs> was that is, uh, was that an obligation? Was it? She was well, uh, big at the time as well. I, well, but at the same time, she was going through this kind of like I'm gonna go into the next phase in my career kind of thing like relaunch myself and she did obviously successfully and I think that she I think that she looked at his success as a kind of way to like kind of catapult her to the the thing that she was wanting to do but at the same time he was kind of like I mean the song that they 
duet on is the title track of the album. So, I mean, there must have been some sort of uh, management meeting one day <laughs> that got the pair of them together. And it, it, you think that some of the great duets that happened in the 80s, like, you would think that this would have been one of the big focal points and, you know, but it just, no one remembers it. No one remembers that they, those two did a duet together. I certainly don't. I mean, you're talking about him helping out his buddy. So, oh. I mean, just looking at the, the writer credits, uh, Iggy Pop's all over this this piece, including, so there's there's three Iggy Pop songs um, and he's helped write a couple of the songs, Tumble and Twirl, uh, Dancing with the Big Boys, uh, who he, he, he actually features in that song as well. But uh, Blue Jean, Loving the Alien, those are those are our main. Let's take take something. Imagine imagine being so successful though. You're like saying to your pal, it's kind of not doing so yeah, well. Get on just, some of this taste. Just do you know what? I'll cover you. It's fine. I mean, that's that's. I would I would hope that any of us would do that for each other. But that's a pretty good position to be in. That the knowledge that anything you uh, create, anybody that jumps on the bandwagon, they're going to be successful. So whatever you think of this album, this was the beginning of what you would describe as the downturn. And then 1985, he's on on Live Aid. We all seen we've all seen a lot of the Live Aid stuff, haven't we? Haven't we? Uh, he's obviously well, not the talk did. of the town in Live Aid, but um, he was there. Well, I don't know, like the uh, the Mick Jagger video. Yeah, is that what you're? So that's what I'm seg- segueing to next. Then in that same year, the Dancing in the Street uh, collaboration with Mick Jagger, and I hope we've all seen this uh, wonderful. That was that music was done video. for Live Aid. It was that yes, because was... you've got the little intro thing at the beginning there. Um, yeah. But the the <laughs> how about this 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 cover um, this cover oh, of Martha okay. Reeves and the Vandellas uh, Dancing in the Street uh, Dancing in your very baggy clothes. Um, yeah. and they were having a competition for who could be the most weirdly shaped man. <laughs> or the most teeth, teethy man. It's the perfect part of song, I'll tell you that. It's, uh, the, the, it's the forehead, uh, forehead to forehead moments that I think, you know, that's when, that's when rock died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So, the, yeah, the moody... Late seventies, boys gone, and it's forehead to be, forehead, teethy, big. Who could big be more mouth, basically? Who could be? Who could be them? They were really up in each I other's mouths. Uh, Mick Jagger's probably the most mouth, but wow! I, I just Teeth love the fact that it was like we need to, you know, we're we're doing this live aid thing. We need to get you in, uh, so <laughs> uh, we'll film this little thing like at an airport at five in the morning and it's like right so we need to get some shots we've only got them for 45 minutes or whatever it's like all right well let's get some close-ups of them running on the spot <laughs> like look yeah, just those those running on the spot shots as well i just yeah. ridiculous. a lot of close proximity here as well real performance to it wasn't it it was really yeah. big big make make the performance big i liked your your effort level that you were Putting into this this producer character. <laughs> oh, let's, same uh, let's get it together. Oh, airport <laughs> at, the same, or whatever. at the same time, though, I feel like I would go and watch the movie of the shoot of that music video. <laughs> Some horrible little abandoned thing next to this old runway in 1985 with two, like, kind of getting to their later 
period, <laughs> rock stars uh, dancing about together. Just it, there's something magical about it, even though it's cringeworthy. It's it, you you can't look away when it comes on. I don't think I, you know. I don't have that reaction. I I, I sit down and I come in. <laughs> <laughs> if it comes on, you're looking at it. That's me. Quite malnourished looking, however, the two of them for being so famous. <laughs> uh, There's well, probably a reason. Uh, well, I think, I don't know about Mick Jagger. Uh, Bowie was not known for being doing anything too exciting at this point, was he? Or am I, am I getting that wrong? I think he uh, still enjoyed a drink, but I think the the cocaine days were behind him. I can tell you that as soon as you stop, it doesn't just stop then. I'm sure the aging process, uh, you still have to suffer the delayed the consequences. Effects. The delayed effects yeah. of a previous uh, enjoyment is what you're seeing. Is that, is well, that it's what you're like, saying? Well, it's like being hungry and you eat and eat and eat, and it's not until like about 20 minutes later you realise how full you <laughs> actually were. So I guess they're full from the drugs. But they'll still be getting the, the the, nourishing, nourishing nutritional benefits. It's the fact that in that music video, I'd still rather be Mick Jagger, because just everything about David Bowie is just wrong. You know, the the jumpsuit with the duffel coat and the trainers and that awful mullet. So, um, <laughs> this is you know, look like he he didn't sleep that night. Like that's for sure. <laughs> This yeah. is the end. This is sort of the the the, com- the coming to an end period of that hair that hair version of him, uh, that blonde sort of version. He's he's the better hair had expired by that point. <laughs> oh, it's gone off. It's, it's gone off, and it's turned into a mullet. So, nineteen eighty five draws to a close, and in, into this next year we are. So, this I think this was the absolute beginners' uh, year, but also more importantly. I know that you're queuing up for the uh, the labyrinth here, but yeah. I might also at this point just uh, jump in and mention that this was the, the second year in the 80s where he did another favour for old Raymond Briggs and uh, wrote the song for um, When the Wind Blows. Have any of you seen that? No, this is some deep business no. here. Tell us about it. Uh, it's another uh, Raymond Briggs uh, comic that was turned into uh, an animation for, I don't know why, it was a Christmas thing, shown on Boxing Day, I think, in 1986. And it's a, a story of an elderly couple in the, the height of the Cold War, and the bomb goes off, and they basically just die together in their little shelter. And they're like this little cute elderly couple, they just wither away with like radiation sickness and die in their little basement um and uh buried the, the song for that and <laughs> and it's uh it's actually a really good song lovely thank you that that I'm was glad i haven't seen that uh, yeah. Ch- check out check out when the wind blows <laughs> and the next thing we're talking about is a characters called hoggle and ludo <laughs> yeah so boy's uh, an actor as well as musician very uh, he's establishing himself in that area and stars in the 1986 film labyrinth and we have all seen this this is a wasn't hugely well received at the time it got sort of mixed reviews and along with dark crystal i think these were things that upset uh, jim henson quite a bit that they weren't you know roundly uh, well received and accepted but this one's certainly a a vhs uh, stalwart i think everybody had either this or the goonies yeah. Just to let you know, Dark Crystal and The Labyrinth, just masterpiece. Both of them. 
Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you something, just a little secret. I know you've seen it, but um, Jennifer Connelly's acting, it doesn't get any better, guys, so don't bother um, with any more of her films. It just, it doesn't, it's not good in this, this young actrix. The actrix just had a win. <laughs> she was up to her tricks. <laughs> you um, weren't even watching her acting, Katie, don't lie. I was watching it. I've I've quoted it. I thought it was her when I was younger. But Especially it last when the night. Goblin King was on screen sharing a scene. Of course, you were not paying trousers. attention. Right. So we should we get into this one then? Yes. <laughs> I'm, in it. I'm all desperate to get into the. We're all we're all into it. Um, so directed by Jim Henson, uh, written by Terry Jones apparently, uh, which I hadn't realised until I'd looked that up uh, recently, um, of Monty Python fame. And what this is, is, I mean, I don't know how you want to look at it. Obviously, there's a deep amount of allegory here within this film. Um, but do you just want to take it at face value as we're going through it? <laughs> oh, yeah. What, yeah. I think safety-wise, let's just safety say wise. it's a very unusual film. So she, worst babysitter <laughs> ever, just horribly terrifies a screaming baby. Just unstable behavior. <laughs> Yeah, like the parents who are clearly they're even less uh, aware of this because they go out for a night out and not once have they listened in on the room before they left to be like, I wonder how how she puts them down for the night. Hopefully the Goblin King comes and takes you from my life. (laughs) Let's go enjoy dinner. I think, um, sorry to jump ahead again. Well, be be assured we're going to cover every bit of the movie, so you don't have to jump ahead. You can can stay in the moment. Um, (laughs) Practice your mindfulness as we go through this this film. So, yeah, terrible babysitter. Um, She says the words, which I I now don't remember. Um, She had to say a generic sentence. (laughs) Generic sentence. (laughs) Tell us. Oh. Oh, I wish this, was go- your, this was I your wish- moment. <laughs> yeah, you f- <laughs> you f- it. I can tell you, I wish the goblin, I wish the goblin king would take you away. And that was it. That was right all. Now. That was all no. she wrote. The goblin king was in amongst, flailing about his crystal, his little crystal balls, um, <laughs> promising her her dreams. Doesn't take much, does it? <laughs> He's sitting there watching the whole time. So he kind of comes in like a new wave Peter Pan, doesn't he, through the window? Um, so at least with Candyman, you have to say his name a few <laughs> times. You know what I mean? You got a, you've got a little bit of a. Are you sure you want to quit this game uh, uh, choice there? But yeah. no, just is he waiting at a lot of babies who their babysitters or sisters don't like them? Is that what his, <laughs> his sort of rounds are? I think the babies get turned into the goblins, so. That's what he's waiting for. You're right. He's just waiting for an impatient babysitter. So, I mean, she said the words, so he's taking the baby, uh, apparently. Um, and she has 13 hours, and fancy a little 13-hour clock, to get through the labyrinth, um, uh, or the baby becomes one of one of us, I think he says, something along those lines. So I think that probably is right, then. The, the baby becomes a, a goblin, um, possibly. Why is he allowed to not be a goblin with <laughs> an inc- incredibly full-size penis like why, why <laughs> there's something not right about that like sexy yeah. <laughs> also, yeah. he's, he, he's not too friendly all these goblin guys so why is he collecting more it's a miserable miserable is, is existence it, isn't it is it like a parent who like you know up on the first kid and then thought oh, I'll have another baby maybe it'll get better failed again and then you just end up with eight kids you hate yeah I don't understand because like where do the other guys come from because he's not created them has he 
the other main characters. She's not creating them from babies, I'm assuming. Who who knows what's happening <laughs> over there? But she's she's as soon as she realizes the baby's gone, she's instantly ready for adventure, jumping into Labyrinth Town and immediately greeted with some public urination um, from Hoggle, <laughs> the fairy killer. Uh, he's he's just is that extra little kicks is what did it for me. He sort of sprays him and he gives a little ground kick. It's like, I, I instantly love this character. I don't know why. He's uh, cynical from the get-go as well, isn't he? He just seems to know who she is and just is like, ah, you're not going to finish this, ha. Huh? So then the the Goblin King's back, we're, we're seeing the, the poor baby crying again, just surrounded by a huge amount of puppets. That must mm, have taken Propped up by a yeah. stick. <laughs> 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 I I mean I don't know what regulations there were in 1986, but yeah, propping up the baby with a stick, just let it cry and bawl. Do you think it's like a Vincent Vega moment where just uh, Jim Henson was just shouting, "Get the shit!" Because um, <laughs> there's no way this went smoothly. There's no way this was like, a, and then take two and baby poke it a little bit to make sure it cries no. and prop it up with a stick. <laughs> I don't think so because I I was uh, the other uh, day when I was doing a little bit of uh, research for this. I saw a a nice little uh, happy photo of David Bowie, Jim Henson and George Lucas all chilling together on the set of The Labyrinth, posing for a photograph. So there was definitely no, we're behind schedule, get the shot. It was more like, you know, oh, George Lucas is coming down today. Were they posing together with a crying baby propped up by a stick (laughs) in the background? (laughs) No, that was probably all just going on in the background while they were having a a luxurious lunch and Warwick Davis was the one over in there holding the fort. But no, the, um, yeah, they were having a great time. So there was definitely no... The people that are getting rich off of this aren't going to get stressed there, are they? There's a baby surrounded by... Yeah, goblin puppets in the background. Chaos is ensuing. So this is our first song, Magic Dance. It's the one you remember. Um, and Funnily uh, enough, <laughs> I, uh, this is... I have a friend who also had that as a, a wedding song. I mean, that's another story for another time. It's definitely uh, another story for another time. Uh, let's talk about yeah. this movie. We Just before we move on, sorry, it's just something that bothered me about the film. It was never followed up on, right? There's the, the When she's doing her little lipstick point the arrow things and there's those little stone turner guys they're never referenced again that would have been interesting what the hell are they they had no incentive yeah. anyway well, moving on what was the next thing the goblin kings uh she's i think that's the point isn't it because it's her hallucinations is why i'm gonna put and they're doing everything in their power to to mess mess with her i think the next scene was the cat dog guards wasn't it the the, the double head guys um, Scottish, of course. Scottish, of course. Uh, very confused. There was a little riddle here, and she picked either the right door or the wrong door. I think it turned out to be the right door. But this is the this is the pit of hands now, isn't it? Careful All those hands. Nail hands. <laughs> Dirty wow. male hands. The awakening. Dirty male just, hands. But it was like that. I was thinking about it last night. Like that's what it would have had to have been. Like it's not fake rubber hands. It's actual nanny's hands that she had to fall down. When they're like, "Where? Which direction would you like to go?" and she's like, "Keep going down." Uh, who would say that when obviously you're you've fallen down a cesspit of hands? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. What's what's next? Yeah, you just you ask to be brought back to the surface. So next is uh, Hoggle, who's in amongst again. For some reason, he's um, at the bottom of this pit, uh, just chilling out. I mean, would you would you trust the guy at the bottom of the the hands pit? She's. Really chilled out, isn't she? She's it's quite placid. So this is yeah, this is where they meet up with their moon dog, who's just sitting there. 
I mean, it was just puppet after puppet. That's I was getting puppet fatigue at this point. It was just like, it was all the new characters being introduced. Well, it was directed by Jim Henson, yeah. Yeah, I know that, but I mean, yeah. you know, the, the Muppets are a big cast, but this is just like ancillary puppets all over the shop. Um, imagine walking into that like into that storeroom of old um, retired labyrinth puppets. It's hundreds of puppets. It must be. Oh, it? The horrible old breath in them and stuff. The lips that have been in them. <laughs> so the next David one, Bowie's card piece. The next, the next puppet is the big one. <laughs> the big, uh, the big Ludo uh, comes in next. He's getting hassled up by these little guys, um, and he, it's just meeting lots of puppets. I mean, we could fire through it, <laughs> to be honest, because you got these. We we just we just have to have a good time, guys. Next. When they kept asking her if they could take her head off. Yeah, that was... I don't know what's going on there. The weird bird things. Let's move past them, because that, that was another almost tap-out moment where I thought, yeah. come on, this is, there's no explanation for these guys. So it was uh, bogus stench time next. I tell you what, I don't know if you were getting this vibe. Uh, like, at this point, I wrote a little note that Hoggle was, like, starting to remind me of Tim Roth, um, like, in his appearance and, and mannerisms. Uh, was that my the only one getting that? Tim Roth? Yes. That poor man. Yes. I was just getting like a hint of Tim Roth for some reason. He doesn't look anything or sound anything like him, but it was possibly because it was late and I was exhausted at this point. Um, just all these puppets. And this is where <laughs> another puppet comes in. Um, they're putting together a, a crew here. They've got Hoggle, Ludo, and then this little fox rat thing. Um, Called Didymus. Sir, Sir Didymus. Sir Didymus, who... It, I mean, later he turns out, because he barks, it's a dog, but he's a dog riding a dog. Which I think it's a little is, fox. He's, cause, but he barks later on. Foxes don't. Did foxes bark? Oh, they make that horrible shrill noise. Yeah. But that's, that, I will say one thing, though. He's one of the few things I do remember from this film, and I thought, like like you were saying, it's like kind of puppet fatigue. But for some reason, the combination of him with a ridiculous other dog puppet lifted my spirits back up to a, to a beautiful, creamy boiling point. I was I was ready because he, he was the highlight. He It became his film for me. <laughs> I, that was when it was like because it was just oh Ludo a big stupid thing and then a bag of eternal stench and oh my god what else are they going to do what else is going to be peach and oh good great peach and um, but like uh, the dog riding the dog that's that's genius we're going to speed through this next bit Ludo so Ludo can summon rocks apparently which is very handy in this particular instance when they're crossing the bog of stench. I was getting some good smell-o-vision in this as well because I was sitting with the dog who was just farting <laughs> up a storm in that room um, during the bog of stench scene, so that added an extra element of enjoyment to it. I don't want to do a Katie here and correct it, bog of eternal stench. Sorry. Bog of eternal stench? That What did I say? Bog of... Uh, uh, just stench. Well, just stench. Yeah. Standard stench. Bug of stench. Just doesn't care bug, anymore. The bug of stench, yeah. <laughs> Give it some gravitas. Um, yeah, so the peach time. As if, a, as if a bloody psychedelic film needed a psychedelic peach moment. That was just, <laughs> that was when I almost tapped out. I thought, what? So she's having a hallucination in a, what seems like a hallucination from eating a peach. Um, this, come on, Jim. This weird um, <laughs> masquerade ball orgy thing they've got going on where David Bowie's. Yeah, that was dicey. Chasing her. <laughs> It was strange. And she's only 15 and it's like the dwarf gave her the psychedelic drug peach. Then she just dozes off in a forest and he's giving her these dreams and appearing in these dreams because she obviously wanders off and ends up ends up in that junkyard. So 
That dream was sketchy, to say the least. Is he like the, uh, is he like the creepy guy in the, you know, the creepy fawn guy in the line Witch in the Wardrobe that takes that girl back to his little tree house and, like, plays the flute and gives us tea and then she falls asleep? Yeah. Don't, don't oh. talk about other films, Adam. Neil will well, be I mean, furious. There's a lot of, a lot of crossover. Um, <laughs> but that's uh, the thing. With, like, with it references becomes... with other sort of stories in this, isn't there? Because you got Alice in Wonderland, obviously, and then um, a bit yeah. of yeah, Line Witch, The Wardrobe, I guess. Because uh, that was already written at C.S. Lewis, the creepy wardrobe world. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's so... the thing, though. It becomes quite evident that he doesn't just obviously want the baby. He would like the, the girls, too. After that bizarre um, dream sequence within what I think is a dream sequence, she is led back to a room by Dump Lady. Hoggle comes correct again, jumps into the big machine thing, and they're kind of they're outside the the king, the Goblin King's castle at this point. And there's a bit of a reconciliation, and into the castle they go. So he sends in the the tiny little Goblin army. Ludo calls on the rocks. A uh, few close calls with some of those chickens, those loose chickens that were running about. With those rolling rocks, did anyone else notice that? Hey, the rules are different back then. Chickens and babies, man. <laughs> Do what you want with them. The army's decimated, it seems, by Ludo's rocks. And then away she goes into the uh, MC Escher room. Where she tells them, like, I don't need your help, which I think could <laughs> yeah. have been pretty... It's the only time that she really would have needed them to get get the baby from all ends. Yeah, let's do a pincer movement on some of these weird stairs. I, I will say one thing though: um, uh, as agonising as it is for Adam to go through and uh, watch, <laughs> uh, listen to us of, of having watched this, but there is a moment. It's very where, entertaining. But there's a moment in it's a shot. It's nothing to do with the magical Escher all that stuff. There's a shot of like it must be like a David Bowie dummy that kind of goes around the edge of one of the sort of stair cliffs, and the way it moves and the way it looks. I almost howled out laughing because I was just like, that That was fantastic. It's so stupid, but I wish I could get a screenshot of it, but it was just this floppy, someone had obviously made, I'm just thinking of all the things that are made in this film. There's puppets, there's, there's Ludo, there's rocks, there's all sorts, but out there, I hope it still exists, is this floppy David Bowie <laughs> dummy that went over the edge for one shot. I hope that exists. Uh, David Lynch could have brought that back for the Twin Peaks uh, remake after he died instead of a instead massive of a talking cat. teapot. Yeah, the teapot. Let's not go to David Lynch. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this is the most abstract final battle of all time, is it not? So she just kind of jumps down the hole and then we bit of talk between them and then it's, uh, you have no power over me. So I'm, I'm assuming this is... This is your allegory time hmm. to, to step in and figure out what's what's okay. really going on here. So leading up to this, um, so it's obviously her having a massive hallucination, having read that wee scripty book thing she's read. Uh, it's it's invaded her dreams, and here we are. So he has no power over her. So that means Toby's back in his bed. Toby's the little baby. I don't think we mentioned that before. <laughs> Um, and Who cares about Toby? She starts packing away her stuff, including the little picture of uh, David Bowie and her on the mirror. And it was all it was all too much for me. And then I need you, Hoggle, was the next bit. And then the puppet oh. party oh. <laughs> with, with the goblins for no reason. With the goblins, just 
here, Jim, get all the just get all the puppets in here. Yeah, we um, said but, that last night. We were like, "What yeah, did she just?" That's where she lost. <laughs> yeah, but that's when we realised, oh, she has just lost her mind because it's just like, and now the baby's back in the crib, uh, puppy party, because it's just madness at the end there. There's like hugging goblins. There's Hoggle on the bed. She sort of rolls about with them. So this poor young lady has lost her mind, and uh, nobody's helping her. The parents are like having dinner for goodness' sake. Leave her with a baby. The eighties. Yeah. yeah, we don't see the sequel, which is just her. Maybe we do see the sequel, but it's called something else. <laughs> Pan's yeah. Labyrinth. Yeah. <laughs> and that's Requiem it. Requiem for a Dream. And that, oh. and that is Labyrinth. Oof. Hey, hey Adam. How, how are you liking right. that one? After all, after I'm going to go. I'm going to get it on. What streaming service did you say it was available on? It was uh, it on right now. Oh. I was gonna the say, famous one said... that you chill, you chill to, do you? That's the one. <laughs> That's yep. the one. Okay, I'll do that. There's part of David Bowie's life and career after this, but um... the rose-tinted glasses of Bowie and Prince, you can say they are more than perfect. Both of them, like before a certain year, but you can't say, you know, from this this film beyond, he 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 did anything you were you were wowed by. So I guess it's kind of sad in the sense that this ridiculous film which you know had some funny moments but it it makes it more upsetting that this madness is where it kind of ends this is a this is a bit of a diner yeah i mean he was like he was the he was untouchable in the 70s right and then the early 80s and then from tonight onwards until about 2013 because heathen was all right but um had a couple of dodgy numbers on it but um, it wasn't until just a couple of years before he died that he really came back to form, but uh, which is a bit of a shame. But a downer again. I, I was trying to lift it up from what David said, but I just made it worse. We we only covered kind of two, well, three albums technically because we're we're lumping the the Labyrinth album in with this slot as well. Um, but favorite album from this period and favorite song. Everyone surely's going to say, "Let's dance now." Favorite not. song, uh, "Dancing in the Street." <laughs> no, under under pressure, or when the wind blows, or the the cat the cat people one. I feel like I'm just talking now. So um, yeah, pick pick one of those yeah, that list that you did. Just, yeah. just throw one out there for the song. So I think yeah, I think we're, we're probably pretty much all in agreement that Less Dance is probably the best album of this period. I love that cat people song. That's a great one. That Georgia Marauder one. That's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I'll 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 be different. Um, the Labyrinth soundtrack. In which he appeared on, because that's the first time I suppose I heard of David Bowie. So, and it would be Magic Dance that I, I enjoy. Do you think it was a strange? Uh, um, would you have that at your wedding, Katie, or is that too far? <laughs> or I definitely, definitely wouldn't have that at my wedding. No. <laughs> <laughs> she loves this yeah. film. So now you see that it's Maybe, weird. Uh, I do hope uh, the man in question listens to this podcast now and realizes just how weird that was, a choice. <laughs> I'll go Let's Dance for the best album and uh, Modern Love for favorite song. I'll go with that one. And we've got one person left to choose these two. Oh, me. I'll make it quick. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll uh, Labyrinth soundtrack, wonderful. But... The only reason I'm going to choose my song is that it was constantly requested by our mother, um, Blue Jean. Just 
every time. God, go try put that on. Put that on. That's one of my favorite songs. One of my favorite songs. I'd never heard it before in my life. She kept asking for it. Kept asking for it. And I never knew what it was until one day I randomly was just on Spotify. I was like, where is this bloody song? So I popped it on. I was like, oh. And my anger turned to, 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 to pure joy. So that's why I like that song the best. Oh, I don't hate my mother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. She did request that a lot. So until next time on the Blast Romcast from. I'm not a coward and my sense of smell is keen. 